This is the Beyond the Studio podcast. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller, and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll have honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts, and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Art World Conference, a business and financial empowerment conference for artists and arts professionals. As cultural partners, we're bringing you an ongoing series of exclusive interviews with guest speakers, working artists, and business experts. Since this is a podcast hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language. If there are sensitive ears around you, be sure to pop in headphones before you start listening. Before we get started, we just want to remind you about the upcoming Art World Conference in Los Angeles on February 15th and 16th. Get your tickets before early bird registration ends and save $50 by January 15th at artworldconference.com. Remember that date, January 15th, because it's also the deadline to apply for CCI's quick grant. California artists can get the full cost of the conference refunded by filling out their quick and easy application at cciarts.org. One more thing we want to share. Our friend and artist accountant Hannah Cole of Sunlight Tax is about to start her 2020 Money Bootcamp program. If you're looking to start off the new year by getting your finances in order, Money Bootcamp is a year of courses, checklists, one-on-one coaching, and accounting designed for creatives. Sign up before January 14th at sunlighttax.com slash moneybootcamp and get $20 off when you use the code BEYONDTHESTUDIO20. And now, on to the episode. On today's episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast, we have a really special interview to share. Uh, we are really excited to be talking with husband and wife duo, Mario Ibarra Jr. and Carla Diaz, who are calling us from Southern California. Thank you both so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Well, we'd love to start off just by hearing a little bit about each of your own creative journeys, especially for those listeners that might not already be familiar with you and your work, both independently and collaboratively. So I wondered if you could each just introduce yourselves a little bit. Well, my name is Mario Ibarra Jr. I'm an artist uh, from Los Angeles. Specifically, I grew up in the port area of Los Angeles in a neighborhood called Wilmington. I went to school at Otis College of Art and Design. I have an undergraduate degree in what's called sculpture new genres. And then I went to the University of California, Irvine for graduate school. And since then, I've had a continued practice as an artist exhibiting and making things. And along with Carla in 2002, we founded a place called Slanguage Studio. Great. And Carla? So yeah, my name is Carla Diaz and I am also an artist and a writer. And I uh, was born here in Los Angeles, but I grew up in Mexico and Los Angeles both. Most of my time, my education has been here in Los Angeles. Um, I make uh, work that is really interested in about displacement and portraiture. And I really like to do some performances also that have to do with cultural context and really being able to engage different communities. I went to school at California Institute of the Arts for my graduate degree. And in my undergraduate, I went to Cal State LA. And again, he talked about how we together founded a Slanguage Studio in 2002. Two, yeah. Two. And can you tell us a little bit about uh, Slanguage Studio? 
Yeah, well, Slanguage Studio was um, when I got out of graduate school in 2001. My friend uh, Juan and Carla and I were looking for a space to work just to uh, be kind of our personal studios. A childhood friend of mine was renting a space that is on the main street here in the neighborhood, Avalon Boulevard. And we were able to rent that space with the intent initially that it was going to be our space be, to work and make our own artwork out of. But then a lot of young artists in the neighborhood started knocking on the window like, hey, Mario, we see you in there. <laughs> What are you doing? And I'd be like, oh, I'm trying to make art. And they're like, well, we can, can we come in? And I'd be like, okay, and open the door. I'm like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm drawing. Oh, can I draw too? I'm like, yeah, okay, here's paper. Go over there that to that corner. <laughs> and then they were like, oh, I want an airbrush. I'd be like, well, here's my old co compressor. Like, go to that corner. Slowly over about a two-year period of time, they started taking over the space. Like, and Carla was still in graduate school at that time. My practice for about two years became facilitating the space for people to come in and work and luckily through the teachers and professors and stuff we've had in school like they would send groups and their classes and curators and stuff and they would look at art on the wall and they'd be like well is that your drawing Mario and I'd be like oh no that's this guy Eric he's drawing like every Ozzy Osbourne album cover ever like that's <laughs> his art I'm like oh are those your photos I'm like oh no that's this graffiti girl Pearl she climbs up on the freeway and takes pictures like of the area she sees from up on the freeway and they would look at me kind of confused and they'd be like well what's your work and I'd have to explain to them like well you're breathing in it the space has become my work and facilitating mm. these folks uh artists in the communities kind of production was had become my practice so your breathing in it became like a kind of de facto call for a kind of a storefront art school through that language evolved into all kinds of things it became a, a kind of training center for art teachers like it became a, a studio where workshops were happening exhibitions were happening a lot of experimentation in my own work and Carla tells a funny story because even as an artist myself or our or when we were working on projects everything had to be on wheels so if we were working on something and you know a workshop had to happen like all of our work had to be like on wheels and rolled to a wall <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, to be able like, to yeah, turn the space around really yeah, quickly like 10 kids would come in from the neighborhood and be making some kind of thing and then after their workshop was over we'd have to like roll all our stuff back out into the space so that we could work on it and uh, so that's kind of what language was and uh, it was a storefront there for about 14 13 years or so and then we went uh, like I Love Lucy episodes we moved to Hollywood <laughs> and we operate out of this place called LAX Art which is a contemporary nonprofit art space and we worked with all kinds of partnered with all kinds of places throughout uh, Los Angeles, which is huge, huge city with all kinds of different types of, you know, neighborhoods and stuff. But this year we decided to come back uh, home to our neighborhood and we now have a, a new kind of space back here in Wilmington where we live. And um, so that's in short what kind of language is and what it's become over the years. Mm -hmm. And Carla, were you involved with language from the beginning too? Or were the two of you collaborating in other ways at that point? Um, yeah, I mean, the, except for the first year, I think it was really hard for me because I was working full time. And uh -huh. so it was more like collaboration financially, you know, and I would just go there when I could on the weekends, you know, whenever I could or free then. 
months because it was really hard for me being a full-time graduate student and being at CalArts. And then during the week, I was working full-time. So it just kind of, it was a different collaboration at the beginning. After the first mm-hmm. year or so, then I really was able to engage more and say, what do I want to do? You know, what workshops could I propose? And I started to really think about developing the programmings there because initially the the studio was, as he said, was not really set up to be a a place for people to come, right? It's like they came to us and they really wanted a space. So I really had to say, okay, if we're going to make a space, a public space and figure out how people are going to come, we really need to rethink about it, right? Like, how are we going to make that possible? I mean, it was really a blank canvas where we didn't have, you know, anything. I mean, we didn't have a toilet, you know, the walls were all dark, you know, it's like we needed to have an exhibition space to make sure, and also the space to bring in students if we wanted to have workshops, right? So that moms and dads and kids feel welcome, right, into that space. So I I had to really think about, you know, how we were going to do that. And I was like, okay, guys, we can't have this, you know, you can't have be looking at no porno. You can't be taking all this stuff. I had to take all kinds of stuff out. I'm like, really? Really? All that stuff has got to go, you know? And so it's like really making sure that it was an inspiring space and also an inviting space for women, you know, for women to feel comfortable to coming in and to make, to talk and to be able and other people's, you know, to come in. And so that's really where I kind of came in. I ruined it. I really did. I ruined it for everybody. (laughs) I think, I think she was, um, it was great when Carla's active involvement picked up because, you know, I wasn't really looking at it to be like, I wanted it to be my studio. When the Uh young artist started coming in and doing workshops and things like this, I was like, okay, like I could facilitate that but I had some experiences experience like facilitating workshops and things like that but Carla really grew up in kind of community art spaces and um, so she had way more experience in organizing like official type of things where I would be like oh if you have like I remember one of the things that we first started doing was one of the girls was like I want to cut stencils and make like for graffiti and I was like okay that's easy we just need cardboard and exacto knives and my only rule was was, okay, you can make these things here, but don't spray paint them on our block. <laughs> like you could spray paint them on the next block down the street, but don't put them on our block. And of, of course, the next day I go out and like all the kids had like spray painted their stencils on all our neighbors, like windows and all that. Uh, uh, so I didn't, so that was like, my rules were very lax. You know, I didn't have, like, <laughs> I didn't have like official structure. And then they'd be like, oh yeah, we want to do a DJ workshop. Okay. Okay. Come on Wednesday. And you know, and they would be playing all the cussing rap songs and everything like super hardcore you know and i'd be like ah, that's fine and then carly be like oh, you can't be playing that all crazy so um so uh, yeah. so the, when she came in and and really kind of implemented structure for like the workshops and what objectives were i think that that really helped helped yeah, us yeah i think it was a good combination <laughs> because once you have and don't don't take us wrong like i always like that kind of flexibility and spontaneity and we can have crazy stuff but i feel like you always have to have like a semi structure so that you can play around move around things and things can happen like that was what really worked with us you know and also you know being married and knowing each other like you know just knowing our strengths and having really 
grown up together because we've known each other right now. I mean, when we uh, met, we were like 19. He was nine. You were 21. I was 18 years old. So we really grew up together, you know, going to art school and like, you know, just in terms of our education, our backgrounds of like being able to communicate with each other, how that might work in the space and what our strengths and weaknesses are. So then when we had our teams or young artists that were coming in or people helping us, we really knew how to work well together, you know, in that sense. I think it had to be a mix of both, you know, because then we could really get stuff done. Mario has a great vision. He's a visionary. And sometimes I would be like, man, that's crazy. You know, like, I didn't, are you serious? Are you really like, are you really serious what you're talking about that you want to do? That is super crazy, right? And he has like things coming out and balloons and like people jumping out of planes. And I'm all, how are we going to make that happen, right? I'm like, geez, how many? And, and I'm like, logistics, right? Can we have the bus just come and like jump out and the kids come out like at the other side? Like, I, I really like, no, no, that's too crazy. You know, so I think that's kind of how we really learn to work in the space, you know, like, so for instance, our first kind of little bit of money after a first year from the studio, because everything was pretty much like we supported that, you know, by just our own work and by bartering and Mario had sold also some work and some of the collection and had some of his um, painting or photography photo. photo. So that first year was really rough in that sense. But then the the city came to us, the city of Los Angeles, and they said, you know, uh, we heard from one of uh, I think we had the Getty interns come and we gave them a presentation and one of the girls said she was interning at the city of Los Angeles and when the city of Los Angeles was looking to give money to the south area the the Bay Area of Los Angeles they said hey are there any spaces in Wilmington you know art spaces you know the person was like no there's no art spaces there and the little girl was like yes there is I just went into a tour right from the Getty and so because usually most of the time we are like ignored in terms of funding right because they either go to the next bigger city San Pedro you know Carson the other nearby cities because we're such a small entity also because there's no trajectory of artists really being you know no art spaces and we didn't know that there was no art spaces here the city of Los Angeles came and say hey can we visit you and we told them about what we were doing and you know the stuff that the the young people had been doing in that first year. And then the city said, the representative of the city of Los Angeles said, well, can you put a proposal, right? And so that was one of those things where you're like, man, like your first time kind of really doing any kind of grant writing or putting something together that's official. You know how that is. It's like nobody oh, yes. like really taught us to do that, you know, like in school, unless you like really yeah. like we're smart about it, right? To be able to figure out how do I do this? And so I am going to do that. I'm going to try to put something together and and Mario and I sat down and we had a big imagination, both of us, like, what do you want? And, you know, Mario's like, I want, you know, like all of my teachers, the teachers that were interning, the young artists to be paid. And, and I was like, well, I want three school buses and I want field trips. And we were like going nuts, right? We were like imagining all this stuff because the city of Los Angeles didn't say how much. They were like, just give us a number, just tell us what you want, you know? And well, we have big imagination. So we're just like thinking crazy. So we told them, well, we want $1 million. And they're like, oh yeah. They came back to us. They're like, 
Yeah, yeah, it's a crazy, right? One million dollars, three buzzes, all this stuff. But guess what? We have half a million. And we're like, what? We were like doing this with nothing, right? So half a million yeah. dollars, we're like, yeah, like give it to us. You know? Oh my God. But that, but that was over like, that money was spread over like, right. a, you know, five years. And, yeah. But we were doing a, a programs with nothing, right? So, and I think even when, when we were getting funded, we were still thinking about like, we weren't coming to it from a kind of org perspective right like mm-hmm. uh, we were coming in from like an, an artist perspective and you both know like as artists you think of things as like a shoestring budget what kinds of things can i barter with people how can yep. i partner yep. with people find in-kind support for things uh, as artists we're very curious so we like mm-hmm. to go around and like what are these people doing right like so we were very very curious and going and finding out like what all our neighbors were doing like what they were up to any Anywhere from like the storefront church to like to, there's like an organization here that is called Communities for a Better Environment. Since we're in a kind of industrial area of Los Angeles, like we're not in a Hollywood area of Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. We're like where all the cranes are. It looks kind of like Oakland, right? Like it looks like all, the Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah. It has all the cranes and yeah. it has all the oil refineries <laughs> and stuff. The neighborhood is also a hardcore union area because of the longshoremen and stuff. So we were like always asking people like, what's going on and what are we doing? How can we partner and i remember our our first partners in the community were this group communities for a better environment and they're this watchdog group that watches all the refineries and making sure diesel fuel isn't like overrunning everybody and uh they're kind of like this org that is really hardcore like they don't take funding from any uh any of the refineries and stuff like that and they're always rebel rousing they're cool I, they're i think they're the coolest group uh-huh. <laughs> and, and they do this thing called uh toxic tours yeah. where they take people in a school bus and they take you around and they show you all the stuff all the sites where all the oil refineries are flaring oh, wow. and you gotta like so you could pay attention to things and but their information is really dense it's it's like I have a master's degree and I've read a lot of stuff, but whenever you hear their presentations or see their visuals, it's a lot of information because it's mm-hmm. it's so dense, like all the stuff that's coming in the air. So one of our first kind of partnerships that once we got a little bit of funding was to work with them and to run a workshop where they came and gave Carla and the, all the studio a presentation about all the stuff that was happening with the environmental concerns. Carla with the kids took that information and they wrote a puppet show called Smoke. City, <laughs> and the kids performed it in both Spanish and English for their families so that they could get this information because I was getting bored sitting in an hour and a half presentation of like all this like information and like imagine a family that yeah. has to go to work and do all this stuff. And so, we had recycled puppets. Yeah, so this. they made like recycled puppets. But like that, that was always, that became like the dovetailed kind of like trajectory of uh, a pedagogy and like lesson plans where like things were about kind of making but then also about social concerns so that became like the format for how we did classes and the teachers were always kind of encouraged and we were helped to the artist teachers that we worked with were always kind of encouraged to develop curriculum that had those two 
entities kind of interlocking so that the kids would learn something about like a social concern or environmental issue, social justice issue, but then at the same time learn like the actual making of like putting together the puppets and bringing materials together. That was the urgency, like 2002, that's already almost 20 years ago. That was the urgency and the concern in the community is that Mm -hmm. these young artists, one, needed a platform and yeah, we needed like a kind of gathering space and kind of de facto school, like I say, but we also needed to have like intergenerational learning happening within the community. We were able to at that time and for the years that we ran the first round to put that into effect. Now that our the younger artists, when they were teenagers and stuff, are now gone to schools and do all this stuff. And now they come back and do their do that kind of legwork now. Well, it, they started to do it not just now, but like before, you know, yeah. like a couple of years ago. I think it all started maybe, 10 kinda, years maybe ago. like six or seven years ago when they were coming back and they were like, OK, I from got school. from school, you know, from a university. And they were like, well, what do we do now? And I was like, looking at them like what do you mean what do you do I didn't teach you right if you're looking at me what do you do like you tell me what we do you know like what do you do you know and they were like well we want to get a group together and we think we need a bike lane because there's no bike lanes here bike lane that was a big one they and so then I was like well you know have your meetings here like go to the city you know we have a city office right like almost like a block away from where the studio was the council person the council person you know and uh, so they they got it together i mean they were actually much more organized than i was and or mario was you know they had like their little flyers they had their emails they had their meetings and they were like well nobody wants to have us we need the internet i was like well here's a space use the internet you know use a space for your meetings like do what you have to do you know so they got it together and then i was so proud of them all of them a lot of them were girls you know and i was so proud of my girls i was like they put it together and they got the city to have that implemented the bike lane now they had like uh, what is the bike uh thing that oh the ciclavia. the ciclavia like which is like the big uh it's like they have it they have it in different parts of the city throughout the year where they like shut down major streets and like thousands of bike riders go so, like, through the city so like now they do that like in front of the studio like yeah so to see these young people you know for us to be able to we have this term you know, facilitate, not player hate. Like, what do you do with the space? Like, we facilitate, not player hate, which means like our mentors, like Carla and I, we grew up going to a center in Long Beach, California. It's called Homeland Cultural Center. And uh, our mentor uh, was a poet and playwright named Manasada Gamboa. He was like the artistic director of the center. This woman named Dixie Swift was the, the executive director of the center. And they were always super involved in the community and involved in the the creation of kind of all kinds of things culturally in the community but the thing that that we learned from them was that they facilitated what the people that came to the center wanted to do like for example when we were in college carla and i before we started language and we, we first started kind of collaborating together and teaching together we would go to dixie and be like oh dixie you know we're we want to create like a teen workshop where we do drawing and uh, writing exercises and make a zine at the end of this thing and then the next week she'd be like okay i found you the 10 kids that are going to be in your workshop you're going to be at this middle school blah 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 and the next week we would have 10 kids and we'd have to be teaching them so she would like throw us right to the sharks what we wanted as our vision as artists to be engaged in so that was about like kind of facilitating like what we brought to the table and she saw the structures that she had to putting those things together 
And mm-hmm. we've kind of always followed that with the the people that have even come to the studio because we don't have like a formatted sense of like, oh, this is what you do here. Like other centers will have like their printmaking workshops or their this type of place. And we've always kind of tried. It's a little bit more harder work. And it means that you can't deal with so many, like so many numbers of people. Like you have mm-hmm. to take in smaller groups because you need like what I, what I feel like in art education and well, just in education in general, you need a little bit of a assessment time at the beginning to know, like, like if I were to meet with you two, I don't, I don't know what either of your practices are, but it like we would have to sit together and like I would have to hear from you and like assess like, oh, this person wants to do this. And then I don't just give you like a blanketed thing for both of your practices because I imagine they're different. Right. So that assess mm-hmm. assessment time with folks when you're trying to facilitate and organize within communities is really important because uh, you can't, you know, criticisms of other types of community organizations or what's become known as social practice has been that folks come in with like a kind of blanketed agenda or a blanketed goals or curriculum and they hope that that somehow like lays as a kind of layer on whatever communities they're working with that doesn't work all the time because all 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 these different folks and artists and creative people or even communities are so different and nuanced that it takes a little bit of time of getting to know them and, and assessing them before you could even think about how you could help them. And then for, for the most part, like these communities might even know how to help themselves and you're just nudging things along a little bit or well, helping but, to structure things. But you also things. have to have the notion that there is a lot there, right? You have to be really observant to being able to say what is valued, right? You have to contribute, you mm-hmm. know? What is so valuable in in you as a as an independent artist, as a young child? What are um, your strengths? You know, what can you give me? And then how can I, if I'm going to teach you some kind of whatever art skill, then how can I teach you that? But you can also have a lot to contribute in your own way, right? And so I think that's really important to not come as if I'm just teaching you everything, that I have all these skills and this is what you're supposed to know. But how can you teach me when I can teach you as well? You know, I think yeah. that's re- that was really important for me. And also when I was working with the young, because I think what was most important also is that we were giving artists the first kind of platform to teach if they wanted to, to learn what that was like. And some of them really didn't know what that was like. Some of them really liked it, you know, when they first had their class. Some of them really hated it. Some of them threw up the first day that they were teaching because they were so nervous, yeah. you know, but that would have been me. were there to kind of facilitate that. Right. And other places, even even now, like what other places give you that space to fail when you're teaching an art class? You know, they don't. They just want you to have all this experience and hundreds of things that you've done. It's like, well, how are you going to have the experience if you don't have a space to fail, to try things, to, you know, have the experience of doing that? So. I think that's what's really important also in terms of what he's talking about, to be able to understand that when you're working with communities, it's not like, you know, you have to understand you are working with those communities and what they have to contribute, you know? Yeah, it sounds very porous, like you're really just facilitating exchanges. And I think it's really beautiful how language seems to have taken on a life of its own and that the fluidity of this 
community center that you've developed seems really connected to its origin story where the two of you were bringing in these strengths as artists, but it also sounds like it started to evolve really organically based on the needs of people coming to you. And I'm wondering if back in those early days, you had that kind of vision for this as being such a hub or community center, or if again, it was really a result of starting to hear the needs of those around you in the community and in what ways have you had to, I don't know if scale is the right word, but just kind of negotiate that maintaining what what makes language what it is, it being this really kind of fluid, responsive place that's really attuned to the needs of the community, and also having to maybe start to deal with some of those more organizational things or find funding or put more structures in place. And what has that looked like? Because it seems like the two of you have a really great dynamic naturally with handling that. And I'm wondering how it's kind of evolved over time. The first thing I think that was really important was us understanding that our community wasn't just outside of the doorstep of the of the space, but that it also expanded into like our art artist community, right? And our art community responding and also having an urgency to be engaged spaces that are not just museums or commercial galleries. It was kind of reciprocal. Well, it went back and forth. So it was also really important for like artists like to be engaged. And I mean, like artists that are like senior artists in the community. And I remember we had our first barbecue back in um, 2002. And a lot of artists, you know, our professors and just different artists from the community came. Well, this one artist, her name was Sandra. Her name is Sandra de la Losa. And she came with this uh, Rastafarian guy. And we were like, oh, cool, Rastafarian guy. Like, you want to play the barbecue? He's like, oh, no, you know, I don't eat meat. And other so we're like, okay, cool. And like, I remember all the young people were like DJing and playing music. And then he asked me, oh, can I sing? And I was like, oh, yeah, for sure. Here's the microphone, you know, please sing. Uh, he started singing this most beautiful like reggae music and um all of us were like floored like oh my god who's this person and i went and asked sandra like sandra like who's your friend like he's just this guy in sweatpants you know like a a rasta dude in sweatpants and then she was like oh that's hr from bad brains and we're like what like this lead singer of bad brains is here at our barbecue like singing and i was telling the kids after i was like hey like thank you for djing they're like oh we really like the Rasta dude and I'm like dude that's HR from Bad Brains and like all of them started taking off like their sweatshirts and one kid was like that's my favorite band ever like he had like a Bad Brains t-shirt on so like those types of things where I'm saying is, and then oh we we need a, they need a PA like they don't we had we didn't have a PA or amplifying system and then artists like Sam Durant heard that and we're like he was like oh I have this old PA if you come get it you can have it you know so like we had people like HR singing Sam Durant giving us you know systems and so we were just like oh wow so like the artistic community like the artist community in Los Angeles not just like a localized community of like families and grandpas and grandmas and kids like I think that at the early stage we understood that was also like a synthesis of communities that we were Mm -hmm. engaged in and that was really fun that's clicked for us like oh we're not just like a localized community center with just dealing with the folks outside the door but we have like this expanded circle of the artistic community in Los Angeles I think that was fun because then we were like we could do this on purpose. Yeah, I was going to ask if there are ways that you've proactively tried to orchestrate that or if it's also been a kind of organic 
byproduct of having a space. Oh, no. and it was intentional, but it was an, an intentionally damn fun. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like we had to, I said to him, if we're going to make this happen and we're going through all this stuff and we got to clean up and we got to move everything and, we, you know, the hustle that you have to go through and sometimes you don't have money to buy nothing. And, you know, the ups and downs that all artists, poor artists go through to have a space, to fund a space, to organize a space, to clean up a space, to curate a space, you know, and then they, people get mad, you know, and it's like it's a lot. Right. So I said, mm-hmm. if we're going to go through all that, we better be damn fun, you know, and if we're going to do it, we're going to do it fun. So I think my intention was always to have that and to do that with whatever any dumb, silly things that we can come up with or any anything that we could do it to make it as fun for ourselves. Right. Because I think once it starts getting like work and frustration, it's like, who wants to do that? Right. You don't mm-hmm. want to be an artist anymore. Right. You don't want to create anymore. So I think that was always my intentionality. And we created the exhibitions were intentional where there were different multi-generational, multi-diverse people coming from different approaches. So they were like young artists from the community to like maybe an artist from Puerto Rico, maybe another artist from Texas, maybe a a young uh, women's collective, you know, so it was like just coming in from different points of view all coming together to have an opening in the same space. And then, of course, I don't know why, but I think I know why, because we always had it at the beginning. There was always music and DJs. And I think musicians would always think this was a music space, you know, because it had that kind of history, right? It certainly was very intentional, you know, how that um, happened. Yeah, and then even with like the higher higher rungs and kind of the art world, like, because oh um, like, we started language in 2002 and then maybe in 2005 we were starting getting to ask to have exhibition and exhibitions in europe and we started to get to go on tour and in 2008 i was part of the whitney biannual and all these kinds of things so like the art world kind of like the greater art world kind of attention would come to the studio and i, I remember hans Olbrist was going to come visit the studio and i remember like two doors down there was a, a storefront church and an old theater that day they they were giving free clothes out to the homeless and uh i was like oh man i hope they by the time the curators come and all this fancy art people come that they're gonna get their free free clothes and move on i know as an artist you know you're trained in school to make everything nice if somebody you know the dog and pony show and people are coming around so i was like trying to make my studio all nice and trying to make it all clean and and then he he showed up with the people that were driving him and he gets out of the car with a little camera and he's taking starts taking pictures of everything you know the whole environment and i'm like oh kind of embarrassed but then he starts saying this is america like this is america and i'm like oh my god like oh wow this is what you know the art world imagination of what like coming to like an artist studio kind of where the rubber hit the road in a weird way and um so they were like things like man i couldn't have paid for better props outside you know how the art folks met us at that train wrecks you know because i remember one time a curator a famous curator from brazil contacted us and he was like 
I want to see graffiti art. And I was like, are you sure? He was like, graffiti art. I want to see Los Angeles graffiti art. You know, this is early 2000s before it was called street art, right? And it was funny because at that time, our studio language was like the safe house for like the most notorious graffiti artists in Los Angeles. So he brought us all his photographs and all of his videotapes because he was like, I can't have them at my house because they're trying to charge him under racketeering law, RICO laws, because he had a national graffiti crew. It was like a national graffiti crew. It's like, if you hold us, hold all my photos for and they were, And the first thing we do when he gets them, we start alphabetizing all the graffiti. <laughs> like, Oh, this is a graffiti. <laughs> like the art, like They're cataloging, yeah, cataloging all already. the photographs, <laughs> and we put them, start putting them in little archival boxes. Like that's like the first like nerd thing that we so do, nerd. right? The, the curator gotta comes. Protect the art. Yeah, that's we have to protect right. the art exactly. And then the curator comes, <laughs> and this guy comes, and we lay out all the photographs on the work table. So they're looking at looking at them with each other. And, you know, the curator has his like Prada shoes and the other guy has like his Doc Martin boots. And like it were like totally two different worlds. Right. Dickies uh-huh. and Prada <laughs> were like the two realms. And uh, so the curator asked the graffiti guy, like, so do you make contemporary art? Mm-hmm. And the graffiti guy looks at me. And he's like, what's what's contemporary art? And I'm like, well. Art that's made now. And he like hits the table and like all the photos kind of like fly up. And he's like, this is art that's made now. This was in this was in New York. This was in Berlin. This is in Mexico, you know. And so there are like these weird intersections that we were able to like facilitate between folks that wouldn't normally have meetings. When I give my presentations about language, Carla's a big advocate. I, I tell her she should have been a defense lawyer or maybe she was a defense lawyer in another life. And there were all these young kids that were breakdancing like a block away from us on the main intersection. Mm-hmm. The police kept ticketing them for loitering, you know, because they would collect money and breakdance there with their boombox. And they came to Carla all sad one day and they were like, oh, Carla, like, <laughs> They're giving us tickets and all the little money that we're collecting is supposed to be for like food and all this. And we're like paying a ticket. So she's like, oh, you could come and break dance here at the, <laughs> at the studio. And I'm like, Carla, where are you going to have these kids break? The, the floor is like concrete with like big drains. She's like, I don't care. They're going to come and break dance here. Also, the next week, like all these 10 kids show up, you know, they're boys and girls. huh? Yeah. And they came with their little uh, linoleum tile and they put it out in our backspace and they're break dancing there. One of the days that they were there just so happens that this man, this man, Gooder, Gunnar Kivnar, who is the he just retired, but he was the director of the Astrup Fernley Museum in Oslo, Norway, which is the biggest collector of American art outside of the U.S. So Gunnar comes. And he's hanging out with these kids, which are the Dub City Tribe Breakers. They're like 14, 15, 16 year old kids, like spinning around and doing all this stuff. <laughs> and Gunnar's there with his, you know, tie and Sweet. hanging out with the Dub City Tribe. And um, he's like totally out of place with these kids. But it was really fun to have those type of moments because mm-hmm. we felt like. You know, Dub City Tribe gets to talk to this man who's a museum director and the museum director gets to talk to the kids that are the Dub City Tribe and and learn from each other. And I felt that that was a kind of like where you talk about scaling, like I think that was part of your question, like it was like a kind of the illustrator file of it. Right. 
like it could expand to like this art world space and and come back to like a neighborhood space and come down from an art world space into a neighborhood space and without any distortion right like they weren't photoshop files there was about like that scaling which i feel is i think any artist is that that's like a really great lesson for artists like i don't know if that's that you're painting behind you that I'm looking at now, the blue and yellow. It is. Yeah. yeah. So like that is about like when I whenever I meet with young painters, I'm like, you got to be about scale because how about if like one of these uh, big art fairs comes and they're like, oh yeah, we need you to paint that, but like huge in like downtown Miami or something, and you're gonna be on a scaff not a scaffold, but one of those uh, crane things, things painting that, right? Like, you can you do that? Like, are you gonna be prepared to do that, or is it gonna be? just about like a kind of painting for you know galleries and if you can scale like that your opportunities will be robust because then i could like we could put you on a plane fly you out rent you a crane and like <laughs> like let you do that right that takes a kind of um the, the, what you're just saying the scaling that part of it is really important for any type of practice i feel and i think once we understood that it's like we could support our, our ways in many different ways right to try to figure out how do we continue as an organization do we want to continue the way we're going i mean these are all like important questions that we had to kind of reflect you know every year we were like reassessing rethinking our strategies uh, putting a new quote on the board and we had a board there and we would like just have a quote of inspiration, you know, once a year, you know, that we would come up as a group and what do we want to do? What opportunities were out there for us, you know? So I think that's, um that was, had become, it grew organically, but I mean, it started organically, but it really became a little bit more intentional as the years, you know. Like I remember one of the first one, was something like to rule is to serve because like the first program of artists that we were showing were artists from outside of our direct community here right. in the neighborhood. So the, the, art the artists we were working with like had to facilitate the project. And I remember the last one a couple of years ago that one of the young people came up with was sweaty but ready. Yeah. Sweaty. <laughs> he was our installation. He did a lot of the installation. He would always sweat, right? I said, Tony, clean your clean your face, you know, get your stuff out of the way. He's like, nah, nah, I'm sweaty but ready, you know? Sweaty but ready. It's really amazing just to hear the two of you talk about the history of your collaboration and all the ways that it's evolved and uh, how it's just created all of these really amazing and unexpected intersections or like you describe them as train wrecks and how you've been able to build momentum in that over time. Um, do you see language or your collaboration as, as how you would describe your artistic practice or do you feel like you also have work or practices independently that you're kind of pursuing? because it seems like these are reinforcing each other in a lot of ways and it seems like you're really actively looking for opportunities to marry the two together so I wonder as organizers and as artists and um, just how you're kind of thinking about your practices as being intertwined we definitely have individual practices and um, I think language is a kind of I always try to explain to people that I see for me personally 
Carla might have a different analogy, but I see kind of language as a, a type of vehicle that is um, like a minivan kind of everybody could get in there, you know, like, but not all of us have the same destination in that minivan. Like I always think when I was a kid, I used to ride the number three bus and I know the number three bus from my house, it would also stop at the mall, but its final destination was the beach and the pier. Other kids would get on and off with us. Sometimes we would go all the way to the beach or we just wanted to go to the mall and then on the way other kids we know all the kids would congregate to the back of the bus and talk and all that the kids would get off and we'd be like oh you're not going to the beach they're like no we're going to the mall right and you had to be okay with that you can't tell everybody like oh you're going to the beach so i see language as kind of like a vehicle that way and that it it has like everybody has kind of over the years now because it's been 17 years that we've been coming back and back and forth with it so uh Certain people have had their destinations where they've gotten off and they've gone to graduate school or they've gone off to have families or they've got jobs or they've mm -hmm. moved to other parts of the country. And when I was younger, you know, because I started this language when with Carla when I was like 27. So it was like a long time ago now. So I, I when I was younger, I would I would want to be like, oh, man, you're you're not going to go all the way with us. Like I would get a more a little bit more upset like that would take it personal that people wouldn't want to go all the way to the beach with us uh but now um now i see that oh no i also need to get off the bus every now and then like i can't always be going to the beach although sometimes i like going <laughs> to the mall sometimes i like to like i so as i as the years pass by i was like oh there's times for me to get off too right and I feel like that that has been the times where like I have taken residencies. I've taken residencies like on the other side of the country while we were doing um, residencies here. And Carla has had to like lead the projects here. And I, but I had to take those residencies because they were important, you know, for me. And uh, and also Carla has taken residencies and they're just also for our own, you know, personal stories to tell. Like, you know, my my projects that I come up with for installations or whatever it is that I'm working on my personal work is very personal they're about like kind of biographic narratives that come from like you know my friends and family and kind of history that isn't necessarily about a shared kind of language base you know with maturity I, I've come to understand that the vehicle of language all of us get on and off of I guess that's the best yeah. way I could put it into yeah. like an analogy like all of us have our own stops and but language keeps moving along and doing this thing. So when I get out to do my projects or Carla gets out to do her projects or any other person that is kind of artists that are working with us, like mm -hmm. that is kind of the space we all need as like, we all kind of need that as individual thinkers anyway, because yeah. when, when it comes back to it, when we come back on the bus, we have information to share again. Like uh -huh. we're re refueled, yeah. we're recharged. I remember one time I had, I did this project in Milan and I was there doing fashion week and I got to meet all these funny, fancy people. But then we were like in Vogue, Italia. When I came back, I was like showing all the kids in the studio. They were like, oh, where were you, Mario? And I'm like, oh, look, I was in Vogue, Italia. And they were like, what? Like, you know, <laughs> like what were you doing there? And I'm like, look, this is Ferrari's grandson. And they're like, what? Like, what? how are you hanging out with him? And I'm like, oh, he's cool. Like, da, da, da. So like 
when we get out of the bus and do our own kind of thing and come back with new information that just adds to everybody's experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the same, almost the same vehicle of like language and my practice, I really do see them working in tandem a lot of times because my process, I, I like to talk and express myself and think out loud. Right. It's like, so I think when I have like a, a group or somebody to kind of throw ideas or reflect ideas, like uh, helps my process like even if it's like my individual process just kind of critically think about it and how I'm gonna work you know and so I feel I'm like sorry. I've always felt like that has always been so important for me you know to have that so I'm always like hey what do you think about this or I was thinking about that and Mario's like um do you really need to talk out loud I'm like yeah I process that way He's like meditate meditate I'm like no I gotta talk it out I'm talking to myself I'm talking to my dog you know and I think so it's like when you have different artists working with the studio, it's like if you understand your process as an individual artist, right, you know, whether it's like going in there and hiding and shutting the door, right, or like coming out and being engaged somehow and selecting that to engage, you know, at certain times, it's like that's always been a choice for us, you know, and I think like sometimes I feel like having that different perspective when I'm like talking to the other people or the other artists that were in the space or even just laughing at them and hearing their stories. Cause they're a crack up, you know, yeah. they were like a crack up. Like they were bringing things that I was like, what the hell is that? Or what kind of a hair do you have on today? Like they had like spike, <laughs> like they like, this is how high my, my uh, mohawk goes, you know? And like things like that um, would sort of really add to my perspective on my work and what I'm thinking about in a weird way that I always just felt, I think, invaluable, that has been so invaluable, you know, to create that space. And I know that for both of us, that's a mutual kind of um, desire, you know, that's language, that we have a space to be able to do that, you know, to engage in that way. Yeah. And one of the things that we also have kind of learned with maturity and experience is that we can together as a collective and as collaborators and as facilitating space for others that it's also very important to share opportunities like you know like sometimes like one person in the group will be getting a lot of opportunities and you have to kind of like my cup runneth over right you gotta like share them with the folks around you and you know like if you have people around you to share them with, that's great. Like then you could pass pass along opportunities. And that's one of the most I think that's a really beautiful thing about being in a collaborative effort that you could share opportunities with your team. Right. Your team. One of the ways that we kind of, you know, learned that or that struck home is like a few years ago, Carla won a grant opportunity for us to go do research in Tokyo. And she really loves sumo wrestling like she's, she's super about sumo wrestling and whenever we go to like the japanese food court here by the house they have this like big jumbo screen on sundays with sumo matches and carla always has to sit like facing the screen and watch the sumos and, and i was like okay you know, when it's a cooking show i'm gonna sit on that side right the jumbotron shows the sumos and carla likes to watch them so she booked us a hotel in the neighborhood where the sumos live in tokyo so during the time we were there, the sumos were out of season in Tokyo, and but they were like in Osaka. But we were seeing the sumos like in the street, like doing their daily things, like riding a bike to go get their groceries and stuff like that. And I'd be like, oh, my God, Carla, there's a sumo. And she would like hit me like, don't point at the sumos. And I'd be like, but that's a 
sumo. Like, how often do you see a sumo riding a bike every you day? Know, like, that's dressed not, like that, like how they're getting. Like, we thought that they were gonna be clothed for. Like, no, they were like ready, like just in their thong. You know, that thing. That and like on. these brown, sweaty, so ready. Yeah, sweaty, yeah, ready. Exactly. Exactly. You know. So we were doing all this research about the sumos. <laughs> we were doing all this research about the sumos and reading and all this stuff. And we came across this article that talked about the order of the sumo house, that they live collectively in these home, these houses. Um, you know, the different uh, coaches and teams have their own houses. And like the highest ranking sumos like in the home, their job is just to eat this big like protein broth, like soup. It's like this big giant soup and like and practice and train. That's their only job. And because they're the ones that bring in all the fame and everything to the house. Right. And then all the lower ranking sumos in the house, they all have uh, chores they have to do. They have to make the broth. They have to they have to just you can imagine all the different chores in the house. But what they were saying is to keep the order of the house so that uh, everybody is doing okay and everybody's kind of keeping the order of this house that if a higher ranking sumo is to fight a lower ranking sumo it's known within the sport and not frowned upon it's known but they kind of let it happen the higher ranking sumos will let the lower ranking sumos score points on them so they keep the order in the house Right. So that if you just beat the lower ranking sumos all the time and don't let them get points or let them get opportunities, there's going to be no one to like make the soup. There's going to be no one to do the stuff around the house. And you're going to have to do that. Right. So I was like, oh, man. So that when I when I heard that, I was like, oh, that makes real a lot of sense, because in other terms, like you would just think the champions or the people that are at the high or you see it you not know, just talk about it. You'll see the people that are at the highest ranks. They just hog up all the opportunity and they're not they're not into giving out and being generous with the folks around them and then that upsets the order so i was like oh man these japanese sumos like they have something figured out to keep like kind of people moving mm -hmm. and uh, i was like man being in with a collective body of artists not just carla and i but a lot of artists that have come through the years working with us at the studio it's like super important to help them also within their progress let them get points it's it's very important to to share so that people are feeling like you know, around you that they're growing, you know, you don't want to be like the super villain type that just wants to take all the opportunity you want to share. And um, that was like a big realization is that like, how can we share? And those opportunities present themselves to you, you know, like they're all different and they could be anywhere from ex exhibiting opportunities mm -hmm. to paid gigs that you can't do, like workshops. Instead of saying just no, be like, I can't do that right now, but I have the perfect person that can do that and pass it along to one of your uh, teammates. That's really important. And because at first when you're an artist or you're still building up your career, you're like you want to say yes to everything because you feel like there's an opportunity attached to them, but not everything fits. So like one of yeah. the one of the analogies would be like, oh, it's great. You have a nice pair of Gucci slippers, but if they don't fit you and they hurt your toes, <laughs> like what good are they doing you? Right. So like if you have yeah, some if you have some Walmart slippers that you wear around the house and they they're comfy, like, hey, that's cool. I think that that's one of the things that the people that you need good models around you to see how to do things. And one of the things that I noticed about the people that I was looking at when I was younger as models for being an artist was that 
they definitely prescribe to what I call the cult of busy. They're just always busy. And then when they don't even ask each other how they're doing, like they see each other, like the question is, what are you doing? Not how are you doing, right? And they're like, oh, what are you working on? And then they're like, they, they, you know, they go into the what I call the cult of busy rant. Oh, I'm working on this and I'm working on this and I'm working on this and I'm working on this, right? But it's always always so tied to that idea of the Western idea of like being productive and having that. Like you always have to be doing something and tied to working and working. Yeah, but it's funny because we will complain about like Mexican grandmas because the first thing they ask you is how you're doing. And then if you ask them how they're doing oh you're gonna hear oh my back hurts and oh my leg is bothering me and oh my hand and all this all and of illnesses. you're gonna hear about all their all the all the things that are bothering them because you ask how are they doing as uh, opposed to like what are you doing so I, I think it's also very important to kind of invert that or shift that with artists and start asking like, oh, how are you doing? Because then it'll contribute to not only our physical well-being, but like our sense of community, our sense of mental health, all these things. Because as artists, we should know best that all of us are working to capacity just in our thinking about like how we create, right? Like um, sometimes I, I'm a little bit hard on myself and Carla will say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. And there, that's nobody telling me to be hard on myself. That's just my own your you know, brain, critical, oh, yeah. critical brain going at how to solve problem solve. Right. So mm-hmm. within our familiar. Yeah, right? that's how we do it. That's how we do it. So I think we're that's so hard on ourselves. We are really hard on ourselves. Not that that's bad, but I think like if we're if we're thinking at least within like our home teams, like this kind of uh, within your like immediate circle of folks that we should be asking your, asking each other, like, how are we doing? And then also be consciously and then kind of just in agreement with each other that we're going to help each other. So like if opportunities come or, you know, those types of things. So that 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 has been what I feel has been the biggest contribution of working in a kind of collaborative effort is that. It's also been access. Yeah, that folks have helped gain access. We've helped people gain access. They've helped us gain access to things. And mm-hmm. it's all very much on different levels, too. It's it's not all the same style of access, right? Like, um, I mean, we, yeah. we work with a lot of, like, self-taught artists. Obviously, like you were saying, street um, artists, you know. And then, and then also artists who, you know, got their graduate, undergraduate degrees. You know, artists who... Um, come from maybe a different background maybe they're like in the social sciences or in the different kinds of academia you know but or historians or curators or whatever but I think they all came into with the same intentionality at least in the space you know when we were working together like that we were always able to share resources and access that and I think that's why we made the space where I think that was also my kind of perspective when, you know, the kids would come from like after school or young artists would stop by, you know, and we would have all the books there and I would be making something or working on a project. I always took the time to make sure that I checked in with them. How are you? How are you doing? You know, what are you thinking about? Because I thought it was so important that they could have this access right to things, to conversations, to readings to other critical points of view that maybe it's not a reality for them in their lives. I mean, a lot of them, 
you know, especially if they were young and, in, you know, in a family, you know, their daily life, what it constituted is that they, they most likely didn't have an artist in their family or their mom or dad were not artists. So they didn't see that as a kind of career or as an important value in their life. Right. And so I always thought that that was such an important thing to, to bring about that. One of the things that I just love hearing both of you talk about that is so unique about what you've built with Slanguage is how it just seems to have leveled the playing field and creating this really central and, and equitable place for people to come from all over and that there's just so much that can happen when you get all of these people in a room together. And it seems like um, so many of these really beautiful collaborations that have happened as a result originated just by creating a, a safe space for people to come together. Yeah, especially a space that's like not pretentious, because I think kids often, especially coming into an art world, like you only think of a very whatever small version of art world you've been exposed to or you think of exists in the world. And there are so many different versions of that in ways that it can be looking different for anybody and having a space where anyone can really live out their version of of art for themselves and not have that hierarchical tiering of like, here's the fine art, here's low art, and like, here's the, the varying levels. Um, it just levels the, the playing field completely. Yeah, I have a big smile on my face because one of the artists that has uh, been working with us. Well, he's a guy I knew since second grade. One day he came into the studio and um, his name is Alonso. And uh, he came into the studio and was like, oh, Mario, I make stuff. I make stuff too. And I was like, okay, cool. And he was showing me all these things that he was making Halloween decorations for his house. Like he would go and get all this styrofoam <laughs> and carve tombstones and make all these fancy stuff. And then later on, we were doing a residency at MoCA here in Los Angeles, and uh, we commissioned him to make a headdress for one of the performances Carla was doing. And he was just all found materials and things that I remember even like dumpster diving with him in his truck, like, okay, I see something down that alley. Let's go. And like, we've got all these materials and he made this beautiful headdress for one of the performances. That was in 2008. So many years, you know, fast forward 10 years, 11 years from that time. Now he's like, one of the the head designers for this thing called Wasteland Weekend, which is this group of people that go out to the desert and recreate like Mad Max lifestyle, like post-apocalyptic. That the idea of multiplicity of art world is is like I always tell people there are art worlds. So if your thing is that you want to make these costumes for people that are playing out like Mad Max post-apocalyptic worlds out in the desert, or you want to be showing things in galleries or making comic books or whatever whatever, there is a kind of place for you. And yeah. this world is so vast that there's a group of people that will be like, pay you to do that. So amazing that that could be traced back to it's just that one gateway opportunity, though. And it makes me think of what you all um, described as the way that language has developed earlier on, which is that you didn't have an end goal in mind, or you couldn't necessarily see what it would become. But it was just a matter of creating the environment, creating the opportunity for those connections to happen and just letting things evolve organically. And so I love that you're creating that exposure for others too, so that they, it just opens the doors to create those first steps. Yeah, it's almost like that rule in improv comedy where you have to say yes and. So whatever idea someone throws out, you can't shoot it down. You got to 
work with it. And so I feel like you're doing a very similar thing. Whatever ideas people are coming into the space, you're like, yeah, let's figure out how to make it work. Yeah. yeah. And as an artist, that keeps us interested in like what's happening around us. Like, because my training was in new genres. So it was intent. And I've taught new genres at UCLA for about 10 years. So it was about the intent driving the medium as opposed to the medium driving the intent, you know? And um, so like, if your intent was to do this, well, let's figure out how to make it happen. Like, and, um, and the world is the material, right? Like even when I was teaching at UCLA I, in my new genres class, instead of them going to buy art materials, I would make them go buy $20 worth of stuff at the dollar store. Let's start looking at the world as like your material base, as opposed to just like the art store or Blick, you know, <laughs> like Blick's website. So like if we could see, if we could see the world that way, then it opens it up to possibilities. And I think that with language, it was the same way at looking at it as like an art project and not not looking at it as, as like, oh, we're going to start a nonprofit organization or we're going to start art org, but to start like a kind of art project that interface with people and try to facilitate those things that they're coming to the door with. And it kind of uh, gave us options to what could happen. I think that is in like in our training, right? But it's been fun. It's been a lot of heartaches too, you know, like sometimes you're like, oh man, like why couldn't I just go a, a route that made sense? And people always yeah. ask us like, why aren't you a nonprofit? And I'm like, well, because it's art. Like yeah. it, art is like about this unknown space. And yeah. if I were, if we were to just be a nonprofit, there would be like very linear things that we would have to do and set up and a board and all these kinds of things. And so, you know. We like it, to just keep it small. So we don't like to like ask for like, you know, you would have to have a board and they would have to have their say and like between us if we have a disagreement it's just me and him you know it's like that's it it sounds like it maybe doesn't lend itself to the kind of flexibility that you've really created um first language and yeah yeah i think i think flexibility has been you know it's been to our betterment and our detriment you know uh-huh. Like, I'm sure, like, if we were a nonprofit, we would own, like, a big building. Right. And, you know what I mean? There would be, like, a, a, a lot more over overhead than sure. we, we have. But that would be a lot more stress, too, for us. Just personally, knowing, uh-huh. knowing my personality and Carter's personality, like, it, it's been flexible enough where people could come together and then go their separate ways when they need to, right? Because uh-huh. we, we work with artists. Um, and artists, you know, like I said, like that bus, they... All of us have different places we need to get off and on at. And, you know, we can't be like, hey, you can't do that. And they're like, hey, man, this is where my my vision is taking me right now. And this is what I need to do and who I need to be around and where I need to be and what I need to be working with. And I just hope the best like that, you know, they'll get back on the bus later, you know. Well, even if the the destination or the endpoint is left really open and flexible it seems like the starting point is really important and that it, that intent um, is the origin or uh, I really like what's kind of emerged as we've been talking is these really core values that seem to kind of lay the groundwork for everything that this has evolved into, which is that and these underlying assumptions that, you know, everybody deserves access, that this should be a place for community, that this education should be open to all and that we all have something to learn from each other. So it seems like these kind of Um, core beliefs have really framed the way that, you know, all of these interactions have happened and all of the programming that's taken place as a result. So even though it's, it's been really 
fluid, um, it sounds like there are these really uh, central values that kind of permeate. And I feel like something we talk about a lot too is working against that that scarcity mindset, which you were describing, like the idea that there there is enough opportunity for everyone that, you know, we all benefit from sharing knowledge with each other and that telling people stories and kind of pulling the veil back on the realities of what it looks like to, to live and work as an artist and um, and just being transparent about, you know, all of the, the challenges challenges, the struggles, and all of the successes, and being a little bit more open and, and vulnerable with all of that is really for the betterment of everyone, that that leads to um, to more success. And so I appreciate that kind of spirit and the way that you talk about your work, because I think it's something that we strive for. And it's really exciting to hear over time, now that you've, um, you know, been involved with this for 10 plus years, to, to really be able to see the effects of that and to have all of these great stories to share, but having some kind of mutual understanding about what's expected or what's motivating you or, you know, what kind of common goals are we working towards? It seems really important. That all equates to a notion of values as artists. Like sometimes we're not necessarily trained to place values on like our intellectual property or our conversation, or even as simple as like our ability to observe. We're trained in a way that no other people are trained to observe. Like that's the first thing that they train us in as, as artists is to observe and then to take critical thought, like as you're observing simultaneously, and then to take action like by making a mark, like you're observing, taking critical thought, and then taking action. Like those three things simultaneously are like invaluable, like they could be used in problem solving. Sometimes we don't take that into value that we have these skill sets that a lot of folks aren't trained in because, you know, we're it's just so second nature to us or ingrained in us. And personally, I feel as artists, like start reclaiming these values, reclaiming and attaching values to all these skill sets that we have and taking note of them. And then that's how you can pass them on to our circle of artist community, direct communities, etc. If we understand like the, our values and understand the different types of capital that we navigate in, like we navigate in social capital, we navigate in cultural capital, we navigate in financial capital, we navigate in communal capital, we navigate in all these realms that hold value. We've allotted ourselves to be prescribed to being in a, in a space where uh, financial capital isn't going to be given, uh, like shared equally amongst like the realm of artists. And we fall into like satiric models of like starving artists and all these kinds of things. And oh, we, we even say, We'll even say before anybody even tells us that, oh, artists are broke and I'm going to allot myself to that condition. And I'm guilty of it, too. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm guilty of that, too, like being like in this romantic space of what what an artist should be and could be as we're going into the this new decade, 2020 into the future. Right. We need to start claiming and re describing and reassigning a language uh, so that not only for ourselves, so that we understand and recognize the value that we carry, but for culture in general, like how we are these kind of foreseers of problematics. We are these kind of observers of culture and space and time, but that we also have at hand plans of action and plans of implementation and strategy that can be not only helpful for ourselves, but uh, communities that we're engaged in. 
Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Thank you so much for for saying that. I think that's a really important message and um, a really great note to end on too. I think that's really tied into um, what's coming up uh, as well in February with Art World Conference, the idea that they're trying to empower artists with these skill sets to be able to transfer. We'll take ownership over the, the skills and abilities that we inherit have and to to transfer those outside of the quote-unquote art world. Well, thank you both so much for this conversation. It was so wonderful to talk with you. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests, special announcements, and podcast giveaways. Manny, baby, I got your money. Don't you worry, Manny. (laughs) Hey, Manny, baby, I got your money. Don't you worry.